0: Pandemics are what we're dealing with now, but it's much larger than that. We're also seeing an increased burden of antimicrobial resistant diseases, uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria, as well as uh, the threat of bioterrorism, which really never went away.
1: Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. As severe weather impacts the Carolinas, it's a timely reminder of how human society has increased the risk of large-scale disasters. From health care to infrastructure to national security, systems designed to keep us safe have also heightened the potential for catastrophe. The constant pressure of climate change, geopolitical conflict, and our tendency to ignore what is hard to grasp exacerbates potential dangers. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Jeff Schlegelmilch, director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. He's also the author of Rethinking Readiness: A Brief Guide to 21st Century Mega Disasters. They discuss how we can prepare for and prevent the 21st century disasters that loom on our horizon.
2: Jeff, it's a obviously a great honor, great privilege, and uh, we've had a chance to forge a relationship over a number of years now. Uh, maybe it would make sense to begin uh, with a little bit of background around the Center at uh, Columbia, where you, Irwin, and uh, other distinguished people work, and some of the work that you've done, and, and basically just talk about the purpose of the Center at Columbia University.
0: Absolutely. The center itself started with some of the bioterrorism funding that became available in 2003, 2004. Uh, and we were originally based at the School of Public Health. And the idea was for to have these schools of public health to have these centers be able to uh, develop training programs for the professional community for these emerging threats. Um, this was before my time at the center, but Dr. Redliner founded the center and really built up a, a number of different projects that included a, a learning management system that's now trained over 100,000 people in over 40 countries, uh, as well as a number of, of impact-based projects. The idea of where maybe there isn't enough science uh, to give the operational answer we need. Uh, one big question we had at that time was you have an infant that's exposed to weaponized inhalational anthrax. What is the proper dosage and what kind of antibiotics do you give? Not a lot of data on infants being exposed to weaponized inhalational anthrax for good reason, but we needed some sort of interim operational approach. And so this is an example where we held these consensus conferences among experts to come up with interim guidelines. Um, so a lot of our work really over the years, no matter what we've done, has been at that intersection of research, policy, and practice. How do we you know, conduct research bring it together and apply it to today's problems. Over the years, we've gotten, in addition to public health, into other areas of climate change, sustainable development, um, looking at other kinds of disasters, moved over to the Earth Institute seven or eight years ago now and um, just have continued that legacy of of great public health work, um, all hazards, disaster preparedness and response, and always trying to generate strong research and apply the body of research, whether it's ours or someone else's, to today's problems in disaster preparedness, response, and recovery.
2: Which is great. What I've always appreciated about the work out of the Center, yours and Irwin's, is the fact that I felt you were always thinking ahead. Uh, You weren't simply uh, deriving information and talking about something that had already happened, but you were thinking, I'll call it creatively, imaginatively, about what might be next and maybe you could share with the audience a little bit about the forward thinking of the center and how you apply data, information, expertise from one event to begin to project to what might be coming next.
0: Yeah, you know, with, um, with the center, Erwin and I joke sometimes that we're reluctant academics, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's this wonderful tradition in academia of sort of expanding the boundaries of the science and digging really deep. And, and pushing the edges of knowledge. In the world of disaster science, there's a lot of unapplied research. There's so many different sectors that come together from so many different aspects of, of, of research policy and practice that come together in the disaster space. They're biological, ecological, political, psychological, you know, any kind of disaster science, any kind of branch of science has a place in disasters. Um, and so with that, we're always looking at you know, what does this mean? Not just what does it say and what does it do to expand our knowledge? What does it mean in terms of improving the outcomes, improving um, the outcomes for people in the real world today and the problems that we face? And so in doing that and in, in uh, with the center, we're always looking at what are the patterns that are out there? What are these smaller disasters telling us about the looming mega disasters that could be out there? Um, and what is it about maybe forgotten Disasters that those threats are still out there, like uh, like those from nuclear conflict, um, that kind of present themselves every once in a while. Say when North Korea does a nuclear test, or there's some heated rhetoric between the United States and and another emerging nuclear power. Um, that you know these threats haven't gone away just because we've stopped paying attention to them. So that's really been, I think, a, a strong tradition of the center is to really take a look at what the patterns are across the different areas of research. um, And what does that mean? How can that help better guide us on a trajectory towards um, greater disaster resilience for for everyone?
2: You've written, Jeff, this great book, which by the way is extraordinarily easy to read and I would commend it to our audience, uh, Rethinking Readiness, a Brief Guide to 21st Century Mega Disasters. And, uh, And just picking up the cover, because of the way, the way the illustration is on the cover, one would think that basically um, this is yet another doomsday book. But in fact, there's a great deal of not just thought, but optimism that I found expressed in the book in terms of what we can do about various risks that seem insurmountable. Maybe you could share with us just a little bit of the thinking that went behind why you decided to write this book and why now.
0: Absolutely. So the original concept for the book, um, actually began with, uh, Dr. Erwin Redliner, um, and, uh, who generously, um, shared the idea with me and worked with me to build it out and build out this book. Uh, and that's this idea that, you know, there are five scenarios that really identify where in the 21st century we're building, a higher likelihood for these mega disasters. Uh, these are areas that, in building out further, I began to see this is where human development, where our activities are contributing to both the overarching threat and the underlying vulnerability. So these areas are bio threats, including pandemics, um, climate change, critical infrastructure failure, cybersecurity and cyber threats, and uh, nuclear conflict. Uh, and so, you know, using an example that we're experiencing now with COVID-19, the way that we're living, the way that we're interconnected uh, as a globe, the way we're, you know, uh, encroaching on agricultural areas and ecological systems like we never have been before are all Increasing the opportunities for diseases to jump the species barrier and then spread throughout the world in a very short period of time. Our underinvestments in a lot of these systems for early detection is increasing our, our vulnerability, um, as well as in broader public health systems. And so, with each of these, here's, here are um, disasters, and there are certainly more that we could have chosen, and there are certainly Um, others that are are looming threats like a super volcano under Yellowstone but these are ones where I think it it provides a good lens to look at what are these common threads across disasters where we're actually setting the table for them um, through our actions increasing the threat and increasing our vulnerability through them Um, and I very much appreciate that some of the optimism came through as well too because while we look at these scenarios and get more and more depressed at how overwhelming they are at their core it's our activities that's contributing to them, which means that it's our connectedness, our ingenuity, um, and our actions going forward that can reduce the risk of these occurring and reduce the impacts of ones that will inevitably occur. Um, and always looking to that, what is it that we can do about it? Um, not just sort of articulate the <laughs> um, ourselves into depression with all of the bad things out there, but how can we assert control over this? How can we leverage knowledge in ways that haven't been done before, at least not at the scale, to sort of turn the tide on these looming threats.
2: Yeah, I'm optimistic uh, because of people like you and Irwin and uh, many of the great experts in the Rain network. Uh, I'm a little less sanguine politically uh, about our ability to prepare for these uh, various risks. I want to be very apolitical because this is as much about human nature. It's not specific to any term of election or administration, but In reading your book carefully, there are a lot of issues that you are warning about and points that you're making, which I could have gone back maybe ten years, fifteen years, twenty years even, and could have even said, uh, you know, the book could have been written back then. And so I'm less politically optimistic than I am uh, in terms of the confidence I have in the science and the data in. NGO groups um, in the ways that communities can be organized. And maybe you can talk to us just a little bit about what seems to prevent us from adequately preparing for specific disasters.
0: Yeah, you know, I... um certainly join you (laughs) in uh, trying to balance being optimistic and while trying to reconcile that with the reality in front of us right now and that we see from time to time with this increasing polarization in our politics. And one of the things I talk about in in the book on rewiring incentive structures, I think speaks to this uh, most, which is that um, what is the incentive To be resilient. We can all agree preparedness saves. That's a great turn of phrase. I'll buy that bumper sticker. But how does that actually translate into the way we behave and the transactions we engage in? So when we talk about the politics, there's a study um, that was done actually looking at voter behavior as it relates to natural hazards and natural disaster policy. And what it found is that after disasters, um, something like, I want to say it's in the neighborhood of $25,000, $26,000 of relief funding buys you an additional vote. (laughs) It was such a strong correlation that you could actually monetize how much relief funding could then lead you to the tipping point in an election. Uh, For preparedness funding, there was no correlation. There was no relationship between the level of preparedness funding and disaster prevention and rewarding politicians. So then you have to ask yourself, why would a politician put their neck on the line for preparedness if their incentive structure—the ultimate incentive—is how voters behave at the ballot box? Uh, when we look at you know transactions, you know, in terms of relating to climate change, if you're competing. In a global environment, and there are entire nations out there and entire industries that you're competing with that are not spending the extra money to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, how can you survive in that environment? And so within, like whether it's the cost of doing business, the individual transactions we engage in, or the political transactions that our elected officials engage within – There's an incentive structure that guides them towards certain decisions. I think we're seeing that play out right now in an extreme. There's a a rewarding of just extreme statements. Uh, There's a rewarding of conspiracy theories. There's a lot of clicks um, for online advertisers, for news sites that have very provocative headlines. And all of these things are currents that are running against the direction we need to be headed in to build resilience and i think in recognizing that we can start to deconstruct them and we can start to say how can we better balance these incentive structures how can we better bake the value of resilience into those transactions be they individual business or or political or or something else
1: Individuals and organizations turn to Rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about Rain, go to www.rainnetwork.com/join to become a member today.
2: So Jeff, if I were, we may be currently trapped in a cycle whether it's political or otherwise, that has yet to allow us to be prepared and to be resilient. You seem to be su- suggesting the incentive system is aligned against the protection of the public, whereas uh, in a crisis, you can quantify you know, the response uh, to the ballot box. You can't do that when it comes to resiliency planning, preparedness, etc. Or if I could maybe simplify it one step further, a, I won't I won't mention who it is, but a former senior member of the intelligence community who became very very active in the notion of cyber preparedness used uh, to tell me David, in Washington it seems to always take a crisis and then by the way, we over respond and then we forget about it and I'm curious whether am I understanding the environment correctly.
0: I believe so. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's the age old problem of how do you justify the expense of something that when the bad thing never happens, right? Public health is always faced with this. Why are we spending all this money on public health? We haven't had polio in this country for, for years. It's like, yeah, that's why we need to keep investing in it. Right. Um, and then the, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, electorally, the, the, Uh, reward comes from the response, a very powerful response, a very decisive response. What happens is is you end up with one piece of legislation layered onto another, layered onto another, and they're not coordinated in a holistic way. Um, And I'll give two quick examples for that. One is that currently for disaster response, they're in the neighborhood of 90 disaster programs spread out across 20 different agencies. 90 programs across 20 agencies. Imagine the paperwork involved. With that. There are different ones that are activated under different circumstances, some with emergency supplementals, some with certain kinds of declarations and who owns it and how they interpret that legislation. And it can change throughout a disaster response. This is that kind of Jenga of assistance that's been built on a very piecemeal, reactionary way. Part of the reason it's reactionary, there was another uh, body of research done in the early days of Homeland Security funding, looking at kind of this federalist approach, right? You can have um, elected officials on the House Appropriations Committee. Now, they're not ultimately accountable to the nation. They're accountable to their district. And so meeting the interests of the district can be at odds with meeting the interests of the nation or of the global community. Um, And I think that that's another situation, I'm not necessarily suggesting we redo our entire system of governance. Um, But what I am saying is that there are incentives and tendencies built into the system that are not always congruent with uh, uh, investing in the big picture and investing in things that are not electorally uh, beneficial under those circumstances. And we need to understand that if we're going to find ways to work within that structure.
2: The process of planning for, I'll call them the, the risks that are now well known, as well as we'll call it the unknown, uh, it has to be taken out of politics. It has to be taken out of the political arena. And it needs to be simplified and it needs to be owned by the scientists.
0: I would say yes and no. So certainly... In an ideal circumstance, yes. And I think we're seeing that right now in countries and in states that are letting the science lead. And it's an evolving science and an incomplete science with COVID-19. But where the best available science is driving the decision making, you're seeing lower transmission rates. And as a consequence, you're seeing uh, more activity in the economies um, in a lot of these places. They're able to open up more freely um, if it's done carefully in line with that. Yes, I do agree with that, that really the the, inf- the science should lead, not the politics. The, the reason why I said yes and no is because the reality is that the politics are a part of this. There's really no clean way to extract that. Um, I would even argue that in areas where science is leading, the political calculation has just been done to allow the science to lead, that that's a better outcome. We have to better understand how the politics intersects with the science. And how the political calculus um, can better recognize the value of leading with science and the costs of uh, leading with politics.
2: Right now, we are, you know, responding to literally one of the most profound hair on fire moments that the world has faced. But I know from the work that you, Irwin, but many many medical experts, um, and they've been cited to. Uh, Bill Gates did his TED Talk. We did a podcast uh, with a leading immunologist who actually uh, was part of the Bloomberg uh, administration, Dr. Jacob Weisfuse. He had produced a 260-page report back in, I believe it was um, 2004, 2006, something like that, uh, where he talked about New York's... uh, Vulnerabilities to a pandemic was not a matter of if, it was when. Highlighted issues around our density, the people who traveled to the city, wonderfully diverse population that travels around the world, the way we rely on mass transit, and highlighted why we, you know, it would be very, very, it would have very profound consequences for the city of New York that the federal government would be ill equipped. To respond. And yet that failed to take hold. In fact, I think you know some of the inventory of necessary equipment and resources, which he identified that would be needed, ended up being sold off as surplus inventory. How do we get to where we should, which is a place where we know what the issues are. We also know that there will be certain unpredictable risks. And how can we be better prepared, be more resilient, and not wait to that moment of crisis? How do we align our incentive system, to use your phrase, such that we're not the people who rush in to buy hurricane insurance after the hurricane, and then we let the policy lapse?
0: So I'll answer that uh, two ways. The first is to say, as you're alluding to as well, is to look at the data. We knew in 2003 from SARS-1, what the burn rate of N95 masks in a hospital would be. And it was modeled out then in terms of how many we'd need in the US, and there was no way it was going to be achieved. We knew again in 2005, when there were numerous reports from the Government Accountability Office and among others, looking at uh, pandemic readiness, the number of ventilators we would go through, and the ability to ramp up production, there were zero surprises for anyone who's worked in public health preparedness, in terms of the shortfalls of personal protective equipment, it's been well documented and well articulated. So, first and foremost, and that's where I say too, with these mega disasters, a lot of folks will say it's a failure of imagination. And I say, no, it's a failure of paying attention, that it doesn't take an imagination to know. What was going to happen in a pandemic? It's one of the most well-articulated things we have in the modern era of disaster management. Um, as with a lot of these, you know, it, it, the, the patterns are there. The certainty isn't, but the patterns are absolutely there. Um, which brings me really into my next point, which is that um, you know, the the key to managing uncertainty is creating options and sustaining those options. We didn't know exactly what the next pandemic was going to be. In fact, a lot of people's money was on influenza because that's typically what we see with these kinds of high fatality pandemics. Coronavirus was in there. We've been worried because of SARS and MERS and others, Zika virus, Ebola, all of these have uh, very um, scary outcomes with the right shift in the genetic makeup of the virus. Uh, but we're dealing with a coronavirus. But again, uh, you know, having options available... Uh, and being ready to execute these options when they're needed, that's what we need to build. So for doing that, we have the strategic national stockpile, which was really never built up to the level to accommodate this kind of a pandemic um, that hits the whole country all at once. So whether it's whether it's building administrative structures or better tools, this is the other, you know, we talked about the National Defense Act, the, the Defense Production Act to increase production of ventilators, which hasn't been fully utilized, but it also wasn't really designed for that. It's being pressed into use for that. Right now, we see overlapping public health emergencies, uh, Stafford Act declarations under the, the traditional disaster management declarations, the National Defense Act, which has been sort of used, but not really, as well as various declarations at state and local levels. These are all sort of a hodgepodge of 20th century disaster response and national security uh, mechanisms, uh, some of them in the early aughts here in the 21st century. So to really step back and say, instead of trying to create one system that's really good at responding to pandemics and another one that's really good at responding to hurricanes, how do we build a system that is adaptive in the face of these different things that has the ability to, and the flexibility to provide this national level coordination and have access and coordination over the resources so that they're available in stockpiles and also to avoid setting up a situation where states are competing with each other. All of this is about creating a, more of a single system that's adaptive rather than a hodgepodge of uh, reactionary systems that are being pressed into use in different ways uh, based on what's next and then to throw the hands up and say, well, nobody could see this coming. This literally everyone in public health preparedness could see coming.
2: Your book breaks down the challenges into basically um, six categories, if I remember
0: correctly. So, with each of these threats, you know, when we're talking about bio threats, of course, it's much Pandemics are what we're dealing with now, but it's much larger than that, right? Uh, pandemics are one component. We're also seeing an increased burden of antimicrobial resistant diseases, uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria in hospitals in the healthcare system responsible for um, for affecting millions of people every year uh, for incredible sums of money for the healthcare system. We're, you know, seeing diseases like multi-drug resistant tuberculosis uh, really affecting people throughout the world and increasingly in the United States, as well as uh, the threat of bioterrorism, which really never went away. Uh, It was a huge focus, of course, after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, and a lot was sort of discovered of the sordid past between the United States and the Soviet Union, Um, but of course is still out there and many terrorist organizations are still very interested in bioweapons. When we talk about climate change, we're looking at a myriad of different impacts from some places experiencing more flooding, more rainfall, more uh, potentially more storms, uh, certainly more severe storms, some places getting drier, less access to water, uh, increased wildfires. We're already seeing echoes of this in the west of the United States, in parts of Europe and other parts of the world. We're seeing cities on the brink of running out of water, all this leading to greater instability in certain regions. Where some regions may be completely uninhabitable over the next century, uh, how does that play into states that are weakened for a variety of other governance reason- reasons? What does that do to food supplies when the temperate regions that are depended upon for certain agricultural products start to shift, as well as broader economic considerations of you know coast- the coastal real estate market? Uh, how is that going to be affected? by increased flooding and rising sea levels. These are all sort of markets and conditions and um, status quos that are about to be thrown out of balance. And if we don't have a plan for that, we're going to be reacting to it. Uh, in the reaction to these when the disasters occur is going to be at a much larger scale than anything in recent memory. That brings us into uh, critical infrastructure. And so much of what we do rests on crumbling infrastructure. Uh, so we're seeing this increased strain on our infrastructure. And it's great to cut ribbons and debut the latest project, but it's very much more difficult to fund it, um, as well as to get a myriad of stakeholders into building uh, infrastructure that's designed for technologies that ha- haven't even been developed yet. And we've seen some patterns of major accidents or major disruptions uh, as a result of our decaying infrastructure that could be. Um, forecasting larger disasters to come, as well as a combination of uh, infrastructure failure with these other disasters. With cybersecurity, everything from nation states stealing secrets and uh, corporate espionage, they call, uh, I believe there's a quote in there on um, the um, cyber espionage from China being one of the largest transfers of wealth in the in modern history, uh, as well as criminal enterprises seeking to make a profit, Uh, And uh, as a new tool in asymmetric warfare, where our uh, local election systems uh, are on the front lines, you know, the, the, the doomsday scenario isn't necessarily a cyber terrorist, you know, destroying a dam or shutting down a power grid, although that's in play as well. But to erode trust in democratic institutions they don't need to change the results of an election and probably a hacker couldn't because these systems are so decentralized but they can make you feel like your vote didn't count they can change registration roles so that when you show up to the polls they don't have you there and this in an environment of increased polarization and distrust that's being fomented um, by those uh, seeking higher office uh, sets the stage for outsized impacts as a result of it. And then finally, with nuclear conflict, this is, I think, one of the most interesting ones because this is one that actually Dr. Redliner uh, really thought was very, very important. And had he not have been involved, I may not have had it in the book. Um, and what I mean by that is that it, it just didn't occur to me like, yeah, the Cold War's over. You know, It's there's some actors out there and we're hearing North Korea, you know, make some noise and stuff. But how worried should we really be? And then I talked with him a lot more and got connected with uh, a historian, uh, Alex Wellerstein at the Stevens Institute in New Jersey, really to learn that actually the the potential for use of nuclear weapons is probably greater than it's ever been in history. Yet at the same time, the consequences of the use of those weapons is completely different than in the heyday of the Cold War when you had the US and the Soviet Union with enough missiles pointed at each other to destroy the world many times over, and any other nuclear power was largely aligned with either one or the other. And so there's a much more unstable dynamic, but also a much more survivable scenario um, should nuclear weapons be used as well as cascading impacts but then of course, across all of these are these what are these cross cutting threats and vulnerabilities? Why is it that these um, threats and vulnerabilities are allowed to fester and persist and grow uh, is in large part due to you know these um, kind of incomplete and reactionary approaches to disaster management rather than forward-looking and really valuing some more cross-cutting investments, uh, building our systems to adapt to uncertainty, uh, funding our, our research to be more cross-disciplinary and include perspectives from from different groups as well as taking a hard look at how... The incentives for the way we do business today may actually be silently growing these threats and vulnerabilities because they fail to adequately price in the value of resilience building until it gets to a point where, you know, it's uh, a mega disaster of proportions that leaves folks to say nobody could have seen this coming.
1: In part two of our podcast on disaster preparedness, David and Jeff discuss how multiple disasters can combine to become a single mega disaster, and how building resilient, adaptable, and sustainable systems so that we can better prepare to respond to and recover from future crises is imperative. Individuals and organizations turn terrain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect and what to do. To learn more about Rain, go to www.rainnetwork.com/join to become a member today.